Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible at your feet. Um, and you can find Mark chapter 9 on page 844 there. Um, somebody asked me, uh, this week, why don't you just put the words on the screen? You know, you put everything else on the screen. Why don't you just put the words on the screen? And um, it, it's a good question. And um, and the the reason, I, you know, it seems like I'll just answer the question. <laughs> um, uh, statistically, I, I don't know why this is, but but statistically, if we don't open our Bibles on Sunday morning, uh, we won't open them the rest of the week. And, uh, and our hope is, is to be a church that loves the Bible and that reads the Bible in community. And so I, I don't usually say this, but um, I just encourage you, if you have a Bible, bring it with you when you come to church. And that would be awesome. And, uh, and that way, if the sermon gets boring, you know, you've got some reading material. And uh, you can find all kinds of crazy things uh, in the Bible without looking even that hard. So uh, with all of that, why don't you stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word. Uh, we're going to read Matthew, uh, Mark 9, starting in verse 2. We're going to read a little bit longer section than, than, uh, than we normally do here, but um, I, I think you can handle it. So let's read God's Word together. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we pray uh, like this this man, like this father, that um, you would have compassion on us. That you would um, make your power known in our midst this morning. God, would we, like him, cry out, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. There are uh, some things in life that, that are really quite amazing. And yet, because we, we have become so familiar with them, uh, we, we start to view them as, as relatively ordinary. They kind of lose their awe and, uh, and their wonder. I, I told a story last week about um, my wife and I living in Scotland. And uh, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the, we, we lived in Edinburgh. And the first time we, we went, got to the city of Edinburgh, we took the train into the city. And unlike American cities where the train you know goes like, 18 miles outside of the center of the city. Uh, when you take the train into Edinburgh, it, it takes you right into the heart of the city. And we, we got off the train, and we walked out of the, um, the train station, and we literally, uh, well, not literally, or figuratively, <laughs> just looked around, and my jaw just hit the ground. Uh, because if you've ever been to Edinburgh, Scotland, or if you've seen pictures, um, it's, it's a stunning city, and right in the heart of the city, right above the train station, is the Edinburgh Castle. And uh, it's, it's, it's perched on top of a volcanic crag that's 430 feet tall. And uh, on top of this volcanic crag, there is this like medieval castle. Um, and and it's, it's you know, this historic fortress. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And it's, it's right in the middle of the city. You can see it from pretty much everywhere you go in the city. Um, it kind of dominates the skyline of Edinburgh. And, uh, and it's incredible. And the thing that I think is so incredible about it is that, you know, when you go to the Grand Canyon, for instance, the Grand Canyon is like six hours outside of nowhere, right? Like, you drive and you drive, you go to like uh, Mount Rushmore. It's like, you're, it's forever, right? You, you only see it maybe once in your life. Um, walking by Edinburgh Castle, I did it every single day on my way to class for three years. And so there's this beautiful, amazing sight that, um, 
that after a little while begins to feel pretty ordinary. Um, life is often like that. Um, other, uh, what else? Um, this, this Friday night we had this like men's pub night at the ranch uh, and we kind of got talking about movies and TV shows and what, what everybody's favorite kind of thing to watch is. And one of the guys was talking about, he said growing up, you know, um, where he grew up there was only one TV station. And we're like, come on, really? He's like, yeah, like CBS, it was all like, um, you know, that's all there was. And it was only on from six, like six in the morning until 10 at night and then, and then it was off, right? And you just think about that and the perspective that we have compared to where the, like, you can never get away from TV, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of stations and they're always on. Um, we're no longer amazed by, uh, by technology. Uh, or another example, uh, we, um, we took our kids to Disneyland on Monday. And uh, I, I know some of you have started to think that like, I have this very anti-Disneyland view, but we had a, we had a great time at Disneyland. Um, but we took our kids to Disneyland, and um, my kids were so excited. My daughter's bouncing around like a pogo stick. I mean, when we walk through the castle, she's just so excited. And we were in line for the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And you know how the line winds around forever and then you finally get inside and you're in the shade and it's like, yes, finally. And the line kind of winds around where the boats for the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean are kind of finishing the, the ride. And you're right there um, as, as we're about to get on the line. My kids are so excited. And one of them pointed out, we look over at the, the boats of the people that are finishing the ride. One of my sons says, everybody on that boat is looking at their cell phone. And kind of in the dark, you can see the glow of like everybody, like you're at Disneyland, right? You're on the ride, like you can't even wait to get off of the, the ride to like, it wasn't amazing enough to, to um, kind of keep your interest all the way until the end, but we're so tuned to like, oh, this is just whatever. It's not the happiest place on earth anymore. It's just, it's just fine, it's just whatever. Um, how quickly our senses are dulled. Uh, I give you those examples to, to say this. I wonder how many of us have had that ex same experience with God. Um, that that there, there's really, a, I mean, if, if the Bible is to be believed, taken at face value, what it's telling us is that the God of the universe has made himself known and wants to know you. That is amazing and incredible. And I have... Um, I mean, I, I have seen people meet Jesus for the first time, and it has changed everything about them. It has changed their... Uh, I remember a college student who... Um, one of the most just incredible things I'd ever heard somebody say was this girl who was sort of, probably not clinically, but sort of a depressive kind of personality, melancholy, let's say. And, uh, and I heard her say, God is so good. And I just remember being so amazed, not at that statement, but that she said it. Uh, it, it changed everything about her and the way that, um, the way that she looked at life. Um, and then on the other hand, there are some of us who just kind of yawn um, at God, or you know, we come into church. I mean, do you guys know what you look like? <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> let me say let me say it like this. Many many years ago, uh, when I was in uh, in seminary, one Sunday uh, I was preaching at our church, and uh, after church I said hey, to my friend Dave, I'm like Dave, you're pretty tired this morning. 
He's like, oh, could you see me? I'm like, yes. I'm standing in front of a room full of people looking at me. I can see everybody. Yes, I can see you. I can see what you look like. Um, okay, today what I want to tell you is, is this, that worship is a weekly opportunity to be stunned by God. Worship is a weekly opportunity to be amazed uh, at the goodness of God, to, to, to tremble in his presence, to be almost blinded by the glory of who he is, to be completely enveloped in his, in his love. This summer we've been looking at the book of Mark, and uh, we're seeing if we can discover the real Jesus. And what we've been saying is that Mark wants us to know that Jesus is both uh, Lord and Savior. He, he is the, uh, the Savior who goes to the cross, but he is also he's the, uh, he's the king who we, um, who we follow. Uh, he's a Savior who gives himself up on the cross in order to make us acceptable to God. And just last week, Jesus has said in the clearest words yet, uh, it, well, last week we looked at this passage in Mark 8, where Jesus has said in the clearest words yet, uh, he said, I am a king who's going to a cross. And then he says, if you would follow me, you, what does it mean to follow somebody? It means to go where they lead you. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, he's a king who goes to the cross. And he's just told his, uh, his followers, he's just told us that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and deny yourself as well. And for the rest of the book of Mark, what Mark is doing is he is, he is kind of, I think, filling out what that way of life looks like. What does a life look like where we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus on the way to the cross? Uh, because Jesus has made it clear that there is a link between glory and the cross. And what, what, what I think we could say is clear from the Gospel of Mark is this, that if you pursue a life of glory, it will lead to the cross. And if you pursue a life of following Jesus to the cross, he will lead you through to an eternity of glory. Um, if we follow Jesus, there will be a link in our lives between the cross and glory. And this passage, I truly believe, is one of the most succinct statements of what the experience of the Christian life is like. Does that make sense? Just in these, what, 20-something verses, there, there's this summary of, of the highest heights and yet the, the incredible reality of what day-to-day life looks like as a follower of Jesus. Um, but the only way that we will actually follow Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him, is if we get a glimpse of what we see in the first part of this passage here, if we get a glimpse of, of what glory actually looks like. Um, so the first thing I want you to see in this passage is, is what worship actually is. Um, what worship actually is. Now, I know that for um, many of us in like kind of church culture, church circles, we've come to talk about worship as the singing time at church. So it's like we're going to have like five worship songs and then we'll stop worship and then we'll read the Bible and then somebody will talk about it. Um, certainly music is worship, but if I have to confess, that's kind of my pet peeve, that like worship stops when the singing stops. Um, what we see in this passage is, is what, what worship actually is. Um, Jesus is going up on a mountain, 
and he takes three of his followers with him, and something incredible happens um, on this mountain. And if you were to read the entire kind of Bible all the way through, um, when you get to the book of Exodus, you get to this point in the book of Exodus where, where God has led his people out of slavery, and they come to Mount Sinai. And the presence of God in a cloud comes down on the mountain. And the mountain is like shaking and trembling. And, um, and God says build a f- to Moses, he says, build a fence around the mountain because uh, if the people come up to the mountain or if they even touch the mountain, they're going to die. And the people are like, there's no chance of us going anywhere near that mountain because it's scaring the living everything out of us. But Moses goes up on the mountain, and, and, uh, and he says to God on the, on the top of the mountain, he says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see what you look like. And God says, you cannot see my glory and live. And so it says he puts Moses in like the cleft of a rock. And, and God says, my glory will pass you by, and you will see like the backside of my glory. And so Moses gets this little glimpse of the backside of the glory of God. And then Moses comes down the mountain and says his face is, is like glowing for several days after that. And now, several centuries later, Jesus is on the mountain. And there's a cloud and there's a voice speaking out of the cloud. And Moses is even showing up. And so... Uh, surely Peter, James, and John and the original readers would have, would have thought, okay, this is Mount Sinai all over again. And certainly there's, there's references back to Mount Sinai, but there's something completely different happening here because Moses reflected the glory of God in the way that the moon reflects the sun, right? Moses was not the source of the, of the glow. <laughs> but here, Jesus lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, It it says his clothes were so white that nobody on earth could bleach them. Um, So so what is is Mark telling us? Well, what he's telling us is is this. It's as simple as this. Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God the way that Moses reflected the glory of God. Saying that Jesus is actually the source of glory. He is the glory of God. For all of eternity, um, Jesus is and has been God. And uh, for all of eternity, uh, Jesus has been in, in perfect communion uh, with the other persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the perfect image, well, I mean, God himself, the glory of God. And yet, what the Bible teaches us is that as Jesus comes to earth, and he takes on the form of a human being, that his glory is, is, is veiled, um, that he is still fully God, and yet his glory is veiled in human flesh. And what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is that that veil or that curtain is just ever so briefly pulled back, and Peter and James and John see Jesus as he really is, um, it's interesting, when they're going back down the mountain, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. And uh, why does he say that? I think the reason he says that is because it would make no sense to anybody until after the resurrection. Because what, what, it's a picture of Jesus in his full glory, in his divinity, in his majesty. And nobody would understand 
if they said, oh yeah, we saw this guy and he started to glow, what are you talking about? Um, nobody would believe it until after he's actually died and risen again. But what this is showing us is this, is that Jesus isn't just a good teacher or a nice guy. He's not just offering us advice. He is God in the flesh. He is the source of true glory. And that means that he is the object of our worship. He is, he is the one that we worship. Now, that alone would be incredible, but there's a little bit more. As they're standing there, uh, just like on Mount Sinai, this cloud comes down. And you see throughout the Old Testament that the God appears as a cloud, the, the Shekinah glory cloud. And, um, and as they're there, the, this cloud comes down. It says it overshadows them or it envelops them. It surrounds them. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. And what you have to understand is, um, what, okay, think about this. Why is Peter so scared? <laughs> it says Peter starts talking nonsense, and he's, he's, he's saying that he's going like, to build some shelters. <laughs> what is he talking about? Because Peter knows when the presence of God comes down, he's in trouble. <laughs> Peter knows what all of us know Inherently, There's this sort of common sense, like American view, that like, well, if I ever saw God, I would have a thing or two to say to him. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. <laughs> um, this is maybe like a, not the best thing to say, but I'm going to say it. Like Indiana Jones gets this, right? There's a ton of biblical allusions in Indiana Jones that are really messed up. But like they open the ark or whatever, and like the cloud like pours out of there and everybody dies, right? <laughs> Um, if that doesn't make sense, just let's just move on. <laughs> um, to be enveloped by the glory of God, the presence of God, Peter knows, and I think we know deep down, that that only brings trouble because um, to be in the presence, the blinding presence of God, the glory of God, we, we just innately, inherently, immediately feel um, our unworthiness, the, the infinite gulf between himself and us. But this cloud comes down, and instead of bringing death to Peter and James and John, it envelops them, it surrounds them, it overshadows them. And they hear the voice of God coming out of the cloud saying, this is my son who I love. And now finally, we can see what, what worship really is. Uh, because uh, this, this is showing us what worship really is. Worship is, okay, I'm going to say it, and it's not going to fully land, but worship is being brought into the heart of ultimate reality. Um, you know, why do I say that? Because at the heart, the Bible tells us that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed eternally in a relationship of mutual love, and now Peter and James and John are being brought into the presence of God. And what are they hearing? They're hearing God the Father affirming and loving God the Son. They're being brought into the presence of ultimate reality. Worship isn't just singing. Worship is what happens when we get a glimpse of the glory of God and who he truly is. And the Bible is telling us that at the heart of ultimate reality is a relationship of love and here we see God um, speaking his love for himself. But not only that, bringing the disciples into the presence of that love. 
And the, the only way I can think to kind of unpack that for us is to say this. Have you ever seen something so beautiful that it almost hurts? Like, have you ever seen something so beautiful that it makes you cry? Um, I, I talked about this at the beginning of the service, but we were on vacation in Colorado like a month ago. And we drove in at night and got to our house where we were staying, and we, you couldn't see what it looked like around us. And we woke up the next morning and looked out the front window. And it was like, oh my gosh. We're surrounded on really four sides by mountain peaks just soaring 3,000 plus feet above us. Just stunningly beautiful. And it, I mean, it literally, like, it makes me... I mean, the two things I thought at the same time were, like, I want to cry and I want to get out and get into the middle of that. And that, as I, I think, just a, a little glimpse of what worship is actually like. Um, whenever we behold something that is truly glorious, we want to be part of it. And yet I think there's also a healthy sense in which we are afraid of it. Um, another kind of example of that, I was... Um, there's this place in uh, kind of above my parents' house in Laguna Beach, where you can you can see like all the way up and down the coast. And we were we were standing there, I don't know, at some point, and uh, you can see all the way up to Palos Verdes and all the way down towards like San Clemente. And you know, Ashley and I were talking about um, like looking at the ocean, <laughs> and say, like I grew up at the beach. I grew up surfing, like I'm very comfortable in the ocean. But you kind of get some perspective on it, and I'm like, I've only been like that far off of the coast. And it is terrifying to think about how much water there is out there. Uh, it, it surrounds and envelops, and yet it is, it is not safe. That's what happens when we behold something truly glorious. Um, I'm sure I've quoted this before, but C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory has the best um, description of, of this that I've ever read. Um, he says this, he says, We have this sense that in the universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will at last open. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. I, can barely, I can't even read that without kind of losing it. I don't know if that resonates with you guys, but I mean, that to me, like, that is what beauty feels. There's this longing and yet, I can't get it in me. <laughs> or I can't get into it. I can only just observe it. 
I can only just scratch the surface. Do you see what, what Lewis is saying, what this passage tell, is telling us is that you were made for worship. Um, you, you long for glory. We were made to taste glory. We long to be connected to the heart of reality. And the question for, for us is not like, are you a person, are you a worshiper? Um, the question is, what are you worshiping or who are you worshiping? Because every one of us has this innate longing. And just because we don't worship the God of the Bible does not mean that we don't worship. Um, it's why we long for beauty and art. It's why we love to eat. It's why we go nuts at sporting events. You know, to be in a crowd surrounded by people that are enthralled with what's going on um, is in some ways an act of worship. It's why we obsess over our kids. It's why we, um, it's why we love to go on vacation. Uh, it's why we long for intimacy. All of these things and more are ways that we try to get glory into us. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And it all makes sense in our deep longing uh, for glory. Um, our deep longing to be enveloped by glory and yet uh, simultaneously sort of afraid of it. It all, it all comes together when we see Jesus for who he actually is. And we are welcomed into the heart who God truly is. He is God in the flesh. He is the source of true glory who brings us into the heart of God himself. And so worship is what happens when we get a taste, a glimpse of, of who Jesus really is. <clears throat> um, it's not just, worship is not just <coughs> excuse me, uh, it's not just like something that happens when we know God. When we know that Jesus is God, um, it's, it's, it's having an impression on our hearts of who he truly is. Um, but it's not simply just, it's not just an emotional response or getting caught up in the moment. It's something beyond that when we actually sense the presence of God. Everyone worships. The only question is what or who will we worship? Let me just say this: um, we are a we are a worship church. Um, I, I think one of the things that makes our church unique and, and not you know different than other churches is that we are a church that gathers to worship. And what I mean by that is is this: because you're going like every church has a worship service. Every church meets every Sunday and does you know worshipy things, right? And that's true. But what I mean by that is we are a church that worships for the sake of worship. And uh, the best way I can uh, say it is like this. Um, you know, th there are some churches, like if you go into a Bible church, the worship service is really um, there to be an instrument of teaching, right? Or there are some churches that, that where the worship service is an opportunity to gather together and experience uh, community. Or um, so there's some churches where the, the, the service, uh, the worship service is an opportunity to gather together, but the kind of real action is when we go out in the community and serve. Uh, and none, no, like none of these things are, 
there, there are different things that uh, God calls every church to be, and every local church in some ways is trying to do all that God calls us to be, and yet, in just in a way that individuals have personalities, churches tend to have certain personalities, and we, and we never really set out to do this, but I think part of it's just like who I am and who Jason is probably, that we have just, I think, become a church where what we are about is gathering as a community weekly to worship together, um, to sense his love, to tremble at his majesty. Worship restores uh, our sanity. Worship um, satisfies our longing. And worship is what enables us to live in this world. Uh, Worship is... A weekly, we gather for every week for worship to behold the glory of Jesus so that we can then go out into the world and deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus in the way that he's inviting us to. <clears throat> and that brings me to the second point, which is uh, hopefully going to be shorter than the first point. I usually look at my my clock on my phone, but they told me it was interfering with my mic, so I have no, I'm like flying blind at this point. Um, <laughs> if people start getting up and leaving, I'll know that it's, it's uh, time is up. <laughs> um, okay. So Peter and James and John have this sort of like mountaintop experience, right? Where, and, and maybe, you know, we've all heard that phrase. I, maybe this is where the phrase comes from. I don't know. But they, they kind of have this this experience of the of the glory of God and and and, um, and they're they're moved to worship, but then they come down the mountain. And, and the reason I, I kind of read these two kind of different passages that are right next to each other is because I, I really think that Mark is like jamming them up next to each other <clears throat> to make a point. Um, to make the point that there is there is always a connection between between glory and the cross. Um, we can we can pursue glory and end up with a cross, or we can pursue the cross and we can end up with glory. But in order to follow Jesus in in this world, in order to to take Jesus' words seriously, what he's just said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Um, we have to have had an experience of his glory. Uh, we've got to have regular experiences of true worship. Um, and yet the reality is that's not like our normal day in and day out lives. And so Jesus and the disciples come down the mountain and they're immediately thrust back into like real life, quote unquote, where the disciples are arguing with people <laughs> and the religious leaders are like pontificating about something. And there's this man whose son is plagued by evil and... Uh, and, and and this is the picture. Like worship is glorious. Like it's it's awe-inspiring in the truest sense. And yet, real life goes on, and people have problems. And how do we how do how do those two merge and intersect? And as they're coming down the mountain, uh, the disciples ask Jesus, um, "Okay, did anybody understand why they said this? They said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay." I, I, what's happening here is uh, the Jews believed and the, the Old Testament taught that before the day of the Lord, when God will finally come back and make everything right and evil will be vanquished, 
uh, Elijah would come back, the great prophet Elijah. And um, in, in chapter 8 of Mark, Peter um, has just, you know, Jesus said he's going to go to the cross and he's going to suffer. And Peter rebukes him and Jesus like smacks him down and says, no, Peter, like you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, Peter's trying to do the same thing now. He's just being a little bit more subtle about it because what, what he's saying is, okay, Elijah's going to come back and then the Messiah is going to win. And we just saw Elijah on the mountain. So Jesus, like, he's kind of like prompting them. It's like when your kids are like, Dad, didn't you say we were going to get dessert tonight? They don't outright ask. They just, he's like hinting at it. And, um, and Jesus' response is, um, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it, how did, how is it written that the Son of Man... Uh, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And one of the other gospel accounts says, and then they realized he was talking about John the Baptist. And so what, what Jesus is saying is, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one who's come. Um, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. And what did they do to him? They, they cut off his head. <laughs> Uh, he suffered, and he died. Um, and so um, what, what Jesus is saying is, yes, there is glory, but, but glory comes on the other side of the cross. Glory always comes on the other side of the cross. The glory that Jesus is going to lead us to is going to be glory. He's going to lead us to the cross and through the cross to glory. And so if we, if we are, um, we're, you know, whenever, whenever suffering comes in our lives, we're always like surprised by it. We're always like, God, what are you doing? But Jesus says over and over again, don't be surprised. This is, what it, this is what it's going to be like to follow me. I'm going to lead you to the cross and through the cross out the other side to glory. Just like happened to John the Baptist, just like happened to Elijah. And so if we're going to live a life headed for the cross, we've got to have access to the glory of God through worship. And so the question is, what does that look like in real life? And that's where this account of the religious leaders arguing and the disciples not knowing what's going on and this father who has a son that is plagued by evil, by a demon, um, I think comes into play. Because all of this stuff is going on and only one person in this whole, in this whole account, the, the second half of the passage, is acknowledging his weakness and his need and he's the only one that's actually asking for help. And um, the, 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 it's the father of this young boy. And he comes to Jesus and he says, um, you know, my son has a, has a demon. It's possessed. And, um, and your disciples couldn't help. Uh, can you help, Jesus? Can you have, would you have compassion on me? If you could do something, um, please. And Jesus says, essentially, Jesus' response is... Um, he says, everything is possible to him who believes. What, he, what he's saying is, I can heal him if you believe. And the man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And I think in that we see what worship in the day in and day out of life looks like. Um, and there, there's three things, and really briefly, that I want, that I want you to see that, that I think are really... Um, challenging and beautiful. And the first thing is this, that worship begins with our helplessness. Worship begins with our helplessness. 
Um, I mean, that's what the, um, that's what he says. I, I'm trying, like, I think I do believe, but, but help me. I don't, I need help. Um, it, it begins with a confession of doubt. And I, I, I think this is so important because, like, we hate this as, as Christians and as, I don't know, people who live in America in the 21st century. Like, we hate the idea that worship would actually begin with our weakness, that, w- that it would begin with our, a confession of our doubt. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about this last night. I don't know why this came to me, but the guy who uh, is the founder of CrossFit, you know, CrossFit, like workout gym, like uh, I once saw an interview with him and he said, you know, sometimes somebody will say to me, like, I'm thinking about starting CrossFit. And he, and he says, my response to them is always, well, call me back when you know you're ready. You know, there's none of this, like, I'm thinking about maybe trying this. Like, this is like, we're getting serious. Like, well, there's no place for weakness in this. Um, that's the way that, that we are kind of conditioned to live our lives. Um, we're talking about some friends that are just struggling and, 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 and suffering. And, and yet the tragedy is, is that they're approaching it in this, like, we've got this. We've got this under control. Like, it's hard, but we've got, we're going to fight this. What this passage is telling us is like, no, you're not. Worship begins with a confession of our helplessness. And I think sometimes many of us have grown up with a form of Christianity that has been like so neatly packaged that it's really great all the time except when we really need it. And when life is actually hard, because we, we've been conditioned to believe that if we follow Jesus, if we, if we put our trust in him, that things will be good and easier, and that's just not life. And Jesus never said to expect that. Um, I could keep saying, there's a lot to say about that. It begins with a... I mean, let me just say, let me, one more thing. Like, don't, 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 um, please don't believe that your doubts keep you away from God. Um, I think some of us have this idea that, that, well, because I have doubts about, is the Bible true? Or I have doubts about all of this stuff. Don't let that be a wall between you and God. Let your doubts drive you to God. Like this father, I believe, help my unbelief. Secondly, worship involves bringing Jesus what we most treasure. Worship involves bringing Jesus what we most treasure. Um, this father, um, we, don't, we don't know. Maybe he's married. Maybe he has other kids. Well, we don't know. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. But anyone who's a parent knows that when one of your kids is suffering, that is all-encompassing and that is all you have, right? And this father brings his son to Jesus. And initially things get worse. You know, uh, the, the evil spirit convulses him and then Jesus casts him out. And then the crowd says, look, he's dead now. Jesus just killed this kid. Um, what, is go- what is going on here? Um, I think to understand 
Why do, why do we have to bring what we most treasure to Jesus in order to truly worship? Because glory means weight. Um, glory means weightiness. And each one of us, we never want to talk about it. We never acknowledge it. But each one of us, at the end of the day, is terrified that we don't actually matter. Uh, which is another way of saying we are, we are terrified that at the end of the day we're going to do all this stuff and live our lives and we're going we're gonna to get to the end of it all and discover that, that we, don't, we don't weigh anything. There's no substance to who we are. And so the things that we treasure are the things that we look to to tell us that we matter. You know, whether that's, um, you know, our ca- the car that we drive, the home that we live in, uh, the zip code that we live in, the, the how much money we make, um, our children, our reputation, maybe it's a number on a scale. And if we ask these things to, to bear the weight of our existence, they will constantly, constantly let us down. And so we bring these things to Jesus and lay them at his feet because... They're not bad things. I mean, many of them. But they can't bear the weight of all that we are. And so when we bring them to Jesus and we lay them at his feet, we find, and we can find our glory uh, not in these other things, but in the one who is the source of glory itself, then we are free to simply enjoy the good things that he gives us. We can enjoy the good things when they, when they don't have to bear the weight of who we are. Worship begins, involves bringing Jesus what we most treasure. And then finally, worship involves intimacy with God through prayer. And um, you see this because, uh, you know, the Father says, I do believe, um, help my unbelief. And then Jesus casts out this demon. And then the disciples, I think this is so funny, but it says privately they went into the house and privately they said, Jesus, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out with prayer. And it, it's like Jesus is saying, like, I, look it, I'm no, I, I, like the whole exorcism thing is weird and I don't fully understand it. But the one thing, I, I've never like been involved in any way in anything like this, but I'm pretty sure you, you should pray. Like, <laughs> right? Like, Exorcism involves prayer, right? Um, and Jesus is saying, like, you guys are trying to cast a demon out without praying. What in the world is going on with you? Um, prayer is an expression of our need for God and our desire for intimacy with him. And that's really what worship is all about. Um, and I have to, I say this, I have to confess, like, I, I struggle with prayer. And um, I, I, <laughs> the, my reality is that I, I, like, I'm a professional prayer, and yet um, I struggle to pray. And I think in large part it's because like, prayer really is, is incredibly intimate, and there's part of me that is afraid of that intimacy. And yet that's what God is offering to us. The glory of, of God is revealed in Jesus is being brought into intimacy with God, being brought into 
the heart of reality. It's knowing God and being known by him. And so worship has to involve intimacy with God through prayer. So let me close with this. I asked at the beginning, let me, let me ask this again. What are some things in our lives that really are amazing and yet have come to feel sort of ordinary to us? Um, is worship one of them? Uh, many years ago when, when we were in grad school um, in Scotland and it was so stinking cold, my wife and I decided we were going to escape to the warmth of, of, of Greece, of the Greek Isles, one summer. And we went to, uh, we spent a week in um, the island of Santorini, which is, it's this old volcanic, it's, it's like a volcano, but half of it's fallen away. And so the, the, the Mediterranean is kind of filled in. And um, one night we're having dinner and you're kind of up on the side of this cliff. And we noticed that everybody started kind of getting up and everybody's kind of heading towards like a certain part of, of town. And we're like wondering what's going on. And we, we start to realize like the sun is starting to set and, and everybody's going to watch the sunset. And, like, and Ashley and I just like sat there and we're like, what, what's with these people? Like, haven't these chumps ever seen a sunset before? You know, and we're kind of like, I don't know, naively like, oh, we grew up in Southern California, man. Like we know what a sunset looks like. People are taking pictures because they're like from Germany or something and <laughs> never seen the sunset over the ocean before. And it's just this startling moment of like, it's so beautiful. It's so utterly staggering. And yet it has become so commonplace to us. And so I just want to close with this. You were born to worship. You were born to worship. You were born to taste the glory of God, to be welcomed into the heart of things, to be enveloped in a relationship of love with the God who created you. And we gather every week to be reminded of who he is and how glorious Jesus is. Don't let that become commonplace for you. Because it is only when we regularly experience the glory of God that we will ever live the kind of lives that he calls us to live, that we want to live lives of adventure where we actually follow him into a life of meaningful sacrifice. And then ultimately through the cross to eternal glory. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this incredible passage and uh, the confession of this man, I believe, helped my unbelief. God, if we, um, if we could only uh, walk out of here and become people who live with those words on our lips, it would mean that we had spent time with Jesus. God, would you um, meet with us? Would you transform us? Would you reorient us to life in this world as we uh, reflect the glory of who you are? In Jesus' name, amen.